Chapter 20 A Gold Ring Ronan walked barefoot across short grass, traversed by cow paths, sheltered by plantations, and dotted with fine old trees, through which he could see the hill of Nokfirna and the faint blue outline of the mountains beyond. Behind the castle, the land rose a little and was enclosed by a wood, mostly oak and birch, knotted with undergrowth. It was the time of the evening when the birds sang just as energetically as they did at dawn, a cacophonous opera of courtship and territorial disputes. He could not remember ever having seen or heard so many. A bumblebee passed him at low altitude, recently woken and still far from alert. You could literally hear the spring. The paths were cool and damp, black with leaf mould and bordered with ivy. On the sunny side of the wood were little lawns of fine grass, full of primroses and violets, white wood anemones and three-cornered garlic. In a few weeks, the forest floor would be a haze of bluebells. He searched the woods in no particular hurry until his quarry revealed itself. A pale blur in the shadow of a furze bush materialised into a large white pony facing the other way. The pony looked around at him with interest. Ronan produced a hunk of bread and the pony swivelled with remarkable alacrity for an animal of its size and accepted the bribe. Ronan looped a rope around its neck. The she rode terrifying, graceful horses, hunted tirelessly and flew their fences like birds. They had offered Ronan one of their finest mounts, which, after a single humiliating outing, he had declined. Never let it be said, he thought ruefully, that the she have no sense of humour. The further he was thrown, the harder they laughed. At some stage during the day, they elected not to damage him, and Ronan was returned muddy but essentially unharmed to the castle. The following day the white pony, formerly used for dragging logs from the forest, was presented. Ronan had mixed feelings about the pony, whose name was Hobie, but he planned to stable him this evening. The neighbouring Dubberku clan was visiting, and the she had notions of ownership that were very different from the human norm. Although strictly ethical in other ways, the principle of take whatever isn't tied down applied. A wandering pony would be fair game to departing guests. Ronan had long passed the point when all the she looked the same to him and their non-human appearance had never bothered him in the slightest, but he found it vaguely disappointing that they had no knowledge of the force or indeed anything that looked like magic. Magic has always been used to explain the inexplicable and we are precisely that in human terms. Isola had told him several weeks previously, as they rode through the winter woods, she on her flighty chestnut and he jogging alongside her on Hobie. We have always had a presence in the human world, and there are times when people can see us, although we try to avoid it. When they do, they see us through the lens of whatever superstition is dominant in their culture at the time. Are you the fairies? Isola laughed. We have been seen as all sorts of magical creatures, ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. People lived in fear of us for centuries. Less so now. Shall we canter?
Hobie broke into a comfortable rolling stride, black-tipped ears pricked forward with excitement. Ronan took a double handful of his abundant mane, just in case. The road wound its way upwards, through the birch woods, and Isola's horse, recognising an opportunity to gallop, flattened her neck and did so. Hobie plunged after, only to find that it had rained during the night and the stream that crossed their path had swelled to three times its normal size. The stream was still relatively small and Hobie surged forward eagerly, preparing to jump. Ronan tightened his grip on the mane and closed his eyes. Then, at the last moment, either infected by his rider's lack of enthusiasm or distracted by the glint of sunlight on the water, Hobie changed his mind. By the time Ronan had picked himself up from the mud on the opposite side of the bank, the pony was drinking its fill. He heard the sound of unshod hooves and Isola's pretty but extremely irritating laugh. I'm so sorry I missed that, she said, securing Hobie who had found something to interest him in the forest. Ronan wiped some of the mud from his face. Don't worry, I'm not hurt. I can see that. She returned with Hobie in tow. He leapt the stream like a pony that had never refused to jump in its life. You must have done something to put him off. Look, he's broken his reins. Doesn't pay much attention to them anyway, said Ronan sourly, knotting the reins. The she used tack of the plainest kind, a bit forged of an alloy that seemed to be predominantly silver, soft rope reins, and a saddle so minimal that it seemed more like a blanket. He mounted from the bank with dignity, and Hobie trotted briskly off before he could get his balance. Ronan remembered this conversation verbatim. He was less clear about when it had occurred. A few days ago, surely. His memory, usually so exact, felt slippery and imprecise. It's like I've been smoking weed, he told himself. Only I haven't. Now, Ronan and the pony made slow progress through the woods. The pony inquired if there was any more bread. When he discovered that there was not, he insisted on frequent stops to eat grass. These were not negotiable. Ronan leant against Hobby's woolly shoulder and waited for him to finish. Hearing the sound of footsteps on the path, he turned to see a human woman hurrying down to the castle, a cloth-wrapped package carefully balanced on a wooden platter in front of her. The pony decided that this must be for him and barged across her path, knocking both the woman and the package into the ditch. Ronan tugged at the rope to no avail, shouted at the pony, also to no avail, and dived into the bushes to save the packet from being trampled. When it was revealed as butter, in which the pony had no interest, he went back to eating grass. Ronan removed some debris from the butter and returned it to its owner as she clambered dishevelled from the undergrowth. I couldn't stop him, he said abruptly. Ronan was aware that some people found his manner off-putting, but was never quite sure why. My name is Ronan, the woman curtsied. Biddy Keevan, your lordship. Her hood had been thrown back in the ruckus, revealing a pale heart-shaped face. Ronan stared at her in astonishment. He was much taller than the humans who lived in the settlement, but surely she knew that he was not one of the she. 
He had seen her before, he realised, a shy woman who lived alone on the outskirts of the village and milked her cattle under the great ash tree in the pasture. The woman bobbed again. I'm sorry, sir. I took you for one of the good folk in the dark. I'd better hurry on with respect to you, sir. Holding the butter in front of her, she walked down the path to the castle. The bats were hunting in the dusk, swooping dark and fast. As Ronan disengaged his pony from the first bush it had been eating, he glimpsed a flash of gold at the bottom of the ditch. He peered down through the undergrowth. There was definitely something there. He glanced around for a tree strong enough to secure the pony, but realised that the light was fading so rapidly that he would never be able to find the same place again. He dropped the rope and clambered down the bank, cold mud oozing between his toes as he searched among the rushes. It was a gold signet ring, human in origin. He turned it over in his hands. The ring had a deep groove on its inner surface, as though it had been worn on a chain. My precious, said Ronan to himself as he slipped the ring onto his little finger. But, like the she, it had no magic powers. He led the pony to his stable in the castle yard and left him hock-deep in straw with a plentiful supply of hay which might, or might not, be sufficient to draw his attention away from the fact that he was capable of unfastening the door and went up to the castle where a feast was being held in honour of the visiting clan. The great hall of Garmoyle, so bleak and forbidding in daytime, was transformed by firelight, although not in the way that Ronan would have transformed it, had he been allowed to have his way. A huge wild pig roasted on a spit, laboriously turned by one of the humans that served the Togon she, a spry little man with thick snow-white hair and jet-black eyebrows. Gobbets of grease dripped into the fire, which flared with an extraordinary turquoise flame. Every now and then he leapt almost into the fire, wielding a long blade with which he cut hunks of meat into the bowl held in his other hand. Moving so quickly and skilfully that the fire did not have a chance to burn him. Ronan wondered what metal the blade was made from. The she did not like iron. They did not really like humans either, but required them to serve the banquet. The white-headed man whistled loudly through his teeth, and a human boy, scarcely more than a child, scrambled to carry the meat to the table. Beeswax candles burned from the wool sconces, throwing flickering shadows on the vaulted ceiling. Both these, and the several barrels of mead uncorked in the corner, filled the room with a scent of honey. The long table was piled with rough brown bread, lumps of butter, and a bland white cheese, of which the she seemed particularly fond. There were salads of wild garlic, hawthorn leaves, golden yellow gorse flowers, and fresh bitter dandelions, and great wooden platters of fried spring mushrooms served with the mashed roots of burdock and horse parsley. The she loved to hunt, but they would happily fish, trap, or go on endless expeditions to gather mushrooms and berries. Ronan observed not for the first time the intensity of colour. The tablescape shone in the candlelight 
like a painting from the Dutch Golden Age. Pale cheeses glowing from within and borage flowers scattered like sapphires through the salad leaves. Ronan hankered briefly after silver candlesticks and Venetian glass. He wondered about the possibilities of a chandelier. Then, thankful that the she were not inclined to small talk, he turned his attention to the visiting host. Even at a banquet the she ate with their fingers, silently, voraciously and with an elegance that Ronan did not think he would be able to emulate. They did not use plates and helped themselves directly from the serving bowls. Their long white canines, more pronounced than human teeth, glinted in the candlelight. The Dabarku were darker and more muscular than Isola's Togon clan. They wore plain bands of gold around their wrists and their garments were lined with a dense aquatic fur. Isola hated the feel of metal and would not allow it near her skin. He had assumed that that was the norm. One of the visitors was looking at him curiously. Their eyes met and Ronan felt something like an electric shock. The backs of his hands prickled. The she took a step towards him and seemed about to initiate a conversation. Suddenly uncomfortable, Ronan retreated to the other side of the room. In the minstrel's corner, the harpist had begun to tune his instrument. The she loved to dance, a process that involved an almost total loss of self, a state that humans could only reach after years of meditation, if at all. At first, Ronan had found that their music lacked harmony. Now he liked the way that it roamed, without a projected destination, so that a single tune might carry through until dawn. But poetry, his least favourite aspect of she entertainment, fell between the happier activities of supper and dancing. The sated revellers retreated to the hard benches around the wall and the poet began to recite. There were several poets in the clan and the one currently taking the centre stage was a tedious being with a keen sense of his own importance and an almost unbearable voice. Ronan thought that he was one of Isola's relations but was unsure of where he fitted in. It wasn't that he was unable to work out how she society was structured, it simply failed to interest him. When he asked Isola to translate some of the poetry, she was stymied. It does have meaning, but not one that you can translate. So why do I have to sit through it? Because it's important. The audience, Ronan was the only human present, was rapt. They leant forward elbows on knees or sat back against the wall with their eyes closed, swaying almost imperceptibly to the ebb and flow of words. The poet gesticulated as he spoke, eyes closed and body swaying with a theatricality that was almost comical. Ronan knew better than to laugh. For the she, a poetry recital was akin to a religious event. Fuck this for a game of darts, he muttered, heading for the door. It was too much to hope that this show of bad manners would go unnoticed. Ronan felt the gaze of many amber eyes on his retreating back. Being of a different species, he had a certain amount of leeway, but leaving in the middle of a poetry recital was overstepping the mark. He didn't really care. 
He had a very low tolerance for sounds of a certain pitch and could no longer endure the poet's nasal but highly penetrating whine. It was not in the Shi way to venture into the lower parts of the castle, which was the domain of their human servants. Ronan, who followed Isola's lead on most things, had never done so, but the responsibility of returning the lost ring was weighing on his mind. He started down the cascade of grim granite steps, at the bottom of which, as from the depths of a well, he could hear the sounds of the kitchen. Everyone in the kitchen was human, and all of them were drunk. He had never seen such a motley crew. The white-headed gentleman, who had so effectively manned the spit, sat at the table chewing on a pig bone, while loudly berating his young assistant, who sucked at a pile of trotters at his feet. A large, brown, gentle person, unsteady on his feet, was engaged in stripping the carcass of remaining meat, piling it on platters, which he then covered with clean white napkins. The women who had served the food sat by the fireplace, laughing raucously and passing a large wooden bowl between them. The she did not use iron themselves, but there was no lack of it in the kitchen. A huge pile of black cauldrons lay stacked by the wash tub, and steam billowed from the spout of a kettle, hung over a blazing fire. The room was lit by oil lamps rather than candles, and its walls were black with soot. The laughter and chattering stopped abruptly as Ronan walked into the room. He had the familiar feeling of having done something wrong. One of the women let out a shriek of laughter, clapped a hand over her mouth and scrambled to her feet. She wrested the wooden cup from her companion and slipped as she did so, showing white hairy legs and no drawers. There was more cackling from the fireplace as she pulled herself to her feet, drank whatever she had not spilt, then dipped the cup into the barrel and offered it to Ronan. Sorry, sir, when you came in the door like that I thought you were one of the good folk. What with them furs and all? She and her companions were wearing dresses of grubby, undyed linen. Ronan, who was almost phobic about sharing drinking vessels, took a cautious mouthful and returned the cup. Mead was heady stuff, and although the she seemed able to drink it in quantity, he had found that he could not. He wondered if they might have different livers. The downstairs party was certainly rowdier and more drunken than the one in the great hall. He wondered, not for the first time, if living in Ildahuk had a deleterious effect on human character. Where is Biddy Keevan? The white-haired man smacked his associate over the head with the pig bone. Go on with you, Gossoon. Show the gentleman into the pantry. The boy scuttled for the door, still clutching a pig's trotter. Ronan followed him down an earthen-floored corridor into a small, cool chamber where Biddy Keevan, wearing a clean apron and apparently sober, was pouring scalding water into shallow wooden pans placed on the floor in a row. Watching her work, Ronan realised that he was drawn to her because she was not like the others. He took a step into the room and she gestured him frantically away. Take care, sir. 
Ronan moved back into the doorway and watched her work. She was dressed like a dairymaid in a period drama, but her movements were accurate and precise. Biddy Keevan filled the final pan and walked carefully between them, drying her hands on her apron. Ronan held out the ring. Does this belong to you? Biddy Keevan gasped. Her hands leapt to the front of her blouse and groped for the missing pendant. Ronan stood patiently, hand extended, until she composed herself enough to take the ring. She wiped her face on her apron, leaving a smear of soot under her eye. Oh, thank you, sir. That ring is very precious to me. It's for my little boy, who's waiting for me at home. It's his father's ring. Ronan retreated. There was an intensity about her that made him uncomfortable. He'd met people like her before, old souls, ancient beings trapped in the bodies of the young. She is older than she looks, he thought. Ronan bowed. Good night, Mrs. Keevan. As he walked back to Star in the moonlight, he remembered the weight of gold in his hand, the smoothness of its surfaces, and the deep track scored through the metal by the chain. Somebody had been wearing that ring around their neck for a very long time. <laughs>